El Fanboy Episode 57. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 56th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? It's uh, it's been another you know very interesting week here at uh, Revenge of the Fans. Just wanted to share with y'all that uh, let's see, we are what are we now? We are two months, three months. We're three months into our lifespan. Uh, in two days, it'll officially be three months. And as of now, we have welcomed uh, just under 70,000 visitors who've clicked on our things, uh, 135,798 times. And, uh, you know, we've got people checking us out all over the world, United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, India, Brazil, Germany, Spain. It's unbelievable. Um... So, you know, riding a high here at Revenge of the Fans, and honestly, I'm feeling like, uh, you know, we're kind of stuck in neutral right now. Yeah, you know, I feel like, okay, we, we th- this is our Mach 1 phase, and I've kind of enjoyed Mach 1. It's nice and simple and straightforward. It's mainly, you know, written content. It's mainly news and editorials and the occasional video and, and reviews of films that are going on, but, you know... As always, I'm eager to sort of kick this up a notch and go to some exciting new places. So, you know, I'm going to be putting my head together with John soon. We're going to talk about finally launching the the feature that I call the Wall of Vengeance, which is going to be where all of your Revenger submissions are going to go in one nice handy-dandy place where people who come to the site, if they want to see what the site's all about and see the platform that we give to fellow fans to come and vent what's on their mind and share their love and share their passion with the world, now they can just click on the wall of vengeance and they're going to see an entire wall, an entire page dedicated to posts by fellow fans just sharing their experience, strength, and truth with the world about the things that matter the most to them. So I want to get that going. I really want to get our YouTube component going. I, I have to upgrade my systems. That's one of the reasons that I haven't been making more videos. The last few videos I made for the El Fanboy channel, you know, there was stuff happening where the audio would fall out of sync, where my mouth would be doing one thing and the sound would be coming out another way. And, you know, it's because a lot of my gear is a little bit dated. So I got to start updating my technology a little bit and I want to start making more videos for you. We've got people working on video content, but as part of Mach 2, uh, as you know, along with the Wall of Vengeance, I want to give you some more video content. I've also got other features that I'm kicking around, and you know, it's just it's hard. It's hard, you know. John and I are the co-founders, but John's got a very demanding job, especially lately. And me, you know, I'm very stretched thin. As I've, as I've, you know, I'm not going to beat that dead horse. You know, for longtime listeners. You know, I do a lot of this as like a one-man band, and I have a million other things going on, and I'm basically not getting paid for it, you know, so it's hard for me to find the time to like tell my family, all right, leave me alone for five hours, I need to work on this thing, when right now, you know, it's, it's still basically a labor of love, and I love it, but it already takes up 
close to 40 hours of my week just running this site, more or less on a voluntary basis. Um, so by the way, just a quick cheap plug, if you have not yet and you're enjoying what I'm doing and you want to support Revenge of the Fans and, and give me an excuse to tell my wife I need to take a break to work on something, uh, please visit patreon.com slash revenge of the fans and donate a few dollars a month to the cause. Every little bit helps right now, you know, with, with all the combined generous donations, we're making like 107 bucks a month via Patreon, you know, so that's nice. And thank you to everyone who is currently contributing to the cause. But obviously, you know, it takes more than that to try to make sure that all the costs are met. I have these wonderful writers and Daniel and Daniel, Donald Lambert and Matthew Vernier um, who contribute pieces every day. I've got uh, Rob Marrera and Brett Miro who contribute, you know, whenever they can. I've got Vanessa and Brett on the Revengers podcast who dedicate those hours a week to the show just because they love doing it. But the, nobody's getting a dollar. This is all, everyone is volunteering. Everyone is pulling together. It's a team effort. Um, but, you know, the, you know the, the, no, no one's making a red cent. And it sometimes can be hard to find the time to create the content that we all want to create for you when, you know, real life is constantly knocking on our door with real responsibilities and our, our quote-unquote day jobs. Uh, tapping us on the shoulder and going, hey, this is where your focus needs to be, all right? Stop talking about Captain America's shield for a second and, you know, come deal with what you have to deal with. So, um, all right. So let's get into some uh, so some topics, some stuff that's on my mind this week. Um, you know, it's interesting what's going on with uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Batman, and it's got me thinking about all the different ways this could play out. Uh, let me preface this by saying, you know, this is all just uh, my, my my own personal speculation, my own sort of wish list. This doesn't come from anything I've heard. And speaking of things I've heard, I'm going to address uh, some of how I'm feeling now about attempting to deliver scoops and give you guys that sort of exclusive content, because I'm actually having very mixed feelings lately. You know, I, I got beat up pretty bad a couple weeks ago when the Aquaman trailer thing didn't pan out. And honestly, it, it, it took much more of a toll on me than I would care to admit. And since this is my show and it's more confessional and here's where I'm just sort of brutally honest, um, you know, I'm going to get into that in a little bit about how, how I'm looking at the whole scoop thing right now and how it may be uh, in, in the best interest of my mental well-being to either lay very low or to just stop altogether like I, I, like I did years ago when I realized that uh, the highs and lows are, are, are very precarious if you're someone who's a, a scoop reporter. But in the meantime, until we get to that, let's talk about some fun stuff. So Jake Gyllenhaal this week was uh, having an interview about being the new celebrity ambassador for Cartier. And the interviewer for uh, China Asian News decided it would be prudent to sneak in a, a huge question, really, about whether or not he's going to be the next Batman. That's like, you know, think about it. Batman, as Ben Affleck has compared it to, is like Hamlet. It's one of these huge, you know, cultural characters it, 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 known around the world, played by so many different actors. It's a huge ordeal, a huge deal. 
And, you know, she, she lays this whopper of a question on him, and he playfully just addresses it, going, oh, that's a difficult question, but the answer to that question is no. Um, and people started running all kinds of you know, headlines that I found rather interesting about that, because this is not new. All kinds of actors, and, and yeah, they've come out and said no up until the moment when they say yes. Because, you know, and there's a multitude of reasons. I already wrote about it, so there's no need to get back into it. But what I find interesting is seeing fellow reporters, people who have been around the block more than once or twice, who are suddenly covering this as if, like, Jake Gyllenhaal debunks rumor, and this is not happening anymore, and this was never true, or whatever the case, you know. As if you can ever take an actor saying no to the bank. Like, are you not paying attention to how many times actors have had to be coy and downright dishonest when it comes to questions like these? So I, I kind of got a chuckle out of that. As for what I think it means, you know, I, I don't think it means much, honestly. I don't think he's definitely going to get the part. I don't think he's not definitely going to get the part. I think, you know, the, the no basically means nothing. It basically just means I can't talk about it right now. You know, at worst, it means actually no, like it was something that was once going to happen, but now it's not, and I'd rather not discuss it. Or at best, I'm, I've got the job, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. So right now, I, you can't do much with that no. Um, but with that in mind... You know, it got me thinking about how I would like this to play out. Because honestly, I kind of hope it is a no. You know, I love Jake Gyllenhaal, and I, you guys have heard me go on and on about him. I think he's criminally underrated. I tell pretty much everyone I know that they have to see Nightcrawler. That movie is a masterpiece and an unbelievable performance by Gyllenhaal that totally took my respect and admiration for him to completely unforeseen levels. So I love Jake Gyllenhaal to pieces, but I just can't picture him as Batman, especially if the original plan, you know, the, the plan that I reported on back in November is still the case, which is that, you know, this is all within the continuity. This is still the same Ben Affleck Batman just played by a different actor. You know, I just can't see Gyllenhaal stepping into the same Batman that Ben Affleck is playing. You know, when I think of that, I feel like you need like a John Hamm or even an Army Hammer, you know, like a, just a larger, bigger presence, someone who can and have that sort of like older, more authoritative feel to him. Obviously, Army Hammer doesn't have the older thing, but he has a physical presence that's on par with Ben Affleck, who's a giant of a man. Um, and I just, you know, I've never really, I can't picture Gyllenhaal in the role. I'd much rather see him as the Riddler, as I've said elsewhere. I'd much rather see him be, you know, Black Mask or, or just, you know, some other villain in the world, some other character in the Batman mythology other than Batman himself. So in my heart of hearts, what I would love to see happen is I would love to see Matt Reeves commit to just one movie so then he can go focus on his Netflix stuff and go take care of his other projects that have all propped up in the year or so since he took this Batman job. He seems very keen on loading up his schedule with other things, so that's great. Let him make one incredible Batman movie starring Ben Affleck, and let it 
adhere to what the original plan was. Because remember, I've always heard and I've shared with y'all. I don't know why I keep saying y'all like I'm from the South all of a sudden, but whatever, we're going to go with it. Um, you know, as I've mentioned in the past, the original plan, as it's been explained to me, was that he, he Affleck would appear in like three or four different DC movies as Batman, and then they would creatively find a way to write him out. And what they wanted to do was, you know, sort of take a page out of Batman Beyond. And not literally Batman Beyond, which I believe is like a total flash forward into the future. And Batman, you know, Bruce is very, like, he's like an elderly man in that. You know, it wouldn't be that extreme. But they wanted to incorporate that idea similar to what Christopher Nolan incorporated in his Dark Knight trilogy, that the cowl is bigger than one man. That when one guy gets older, he passes it down. And the funny thing is, you know, that idea, and I know some of you are cringing, some of you are like, no, Batman has to be Bruce Wayne. But if you think about some of the the um, the origin, some of the mythology of Batman, you know, he's kind of tied into Zorro a little bit. You guys know about that, the Zorro connection? Uh, depending on, you know, what, you know, wh which version of the origin you've seen, Sometimes the movie that they that he and the Waynes have come out from watching is a Zorro movie. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up because in the Zorro lore, he passes down the mask. There have been many Zorros. I don't know if you guys have, saw any of those movies from the late 90s, you know, with the mask of Zorro and the legend of Zorro. You know, the, the whole idea is that at some point the originator got old and he trained a new Zorro, gave him the mask, and he took on the mantle. So Zorro became more of this mythical figure who was timeless and ageless and existed for seemingly decades upon decades without ever getting too old because, you know, it's not about, it's not, it's never been one man. So I feel like DC is within their rights to sort of take that further. You know, Nolan played with it with the whole idea of John Robin Blake you know, taking on the mantle at the end of The Dark Knight Rises. And I think it would be totally fine and completely reasonable to do that here. I really do. Um, and, I, you know, it, it, and that's the thing. The seeds are there. If you've been paying attention, the seeds are there. A, they started with an older Bruce Wayne just to begin with, already with the gray hair, uh, a Batman who's already towards the tail end of his run as the Dark Knight. Then there was that interesting line in Justice League, which I couldn't help but notice that they left in there, despite all the uh, shakeups that are going on behind the scenes, despite all the uncertainty. There's that line there when it's just him and Diana and he's peeling off the suit and she you know, is trying to help him because his body's ailing. He has a line about, you know, I may be too old for this already. And, you know, they really seem to be planting the seeds of this Bruce Wayne is at the end of his run and he's not going to be able to keep this up much further. So with that in mind, you could tell a great aging detective story with, with Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne at the helm, you know, at the center of it all, and make part of that story the idea that, you know, he's going to be passing it down to a new person soon. You know, maybe in this movie, you introduce 
you know, a, a Robin type figure or you have Nightwing show up because, you know, in this world, since he is older, a lot of stuff has already happened. So you can have it like there's a Nightwing who's been looming in the shadows through these other DC films who comes and he's part of this tale somehow. And then for the follow-ups, you have that Nightwing inherit the cowl. That Dick Grayson becomes Batman. And, to, and, to, and, and you don't have to go directly into that. Remember, they want to make a Nightwing movie. So in my mind, you make the Batman, right? You introduce Nightwing in that movie, and you introduce the idea that Bruce is you know, after this case. What's going to happen in this case is going to push him into retirement because once he solves this and deals with whatever it is, he just can't do this anymore. Then you make a standalone Nightwing movie and make a subplot of that, the idea that you know he's been offered the mantle. And make, make that part of that character's arc of trying to figure out, do I want to continue being my own man here as Nightwing, or do I become the next Batman? And then in the following movie set in this shared universe, Nightwing assumes the role, and by then we've already gotten to know and like and invest in this Dick Grayson, and he becomes the new Batman. I would like to see it play that way. I think everybody wins. Because then you can even keep Ben Affleck around. You can keep him around for just the occasional cameo as old man Wayne there to help Dick out whenever, you know, something comes up. You know, and heck, if you wanted to get to like a Kingdom Come type movie 10 years from now, when Affleck is closer to 60 than he is to 50, maybe you can get him to do it. You know, listen, this is just, this is my sort of fan casting, you know, this is how I would like to see it play out. And listen, I know it's sacrilegious to some of you, or maybe I should say to some of y'all, or the way I'm doing lately. Uh, you know, maybe may, maybe this is insane to talk about, but I really think, you know, I think it's okay. You know, the, the only thing I would change now is I would have made it more part of the fabric of these previous movies so far, so that it's less of a jarring switch. Because right now, with the way they've done it, you know, they're going to have to introduce this idea and make people comfortable with it over the course of one Batman movie. Whereas had they been dropping, you know, some stronger hints throughout Batman v Superman and throughout Justice League and even throughout his brief appearance in Suicide Squad, then, you know, people would already see this coming and it wouldn't be as jarring and as outrageous. So, listen, I know some of you are going to hate me, or not, not hate me, but, you know, some of you are going to think, what a terrible idea. Feel free to contact me on the Twitter. Let me know, you know, how you would like to see it play out. But in my heart of hearts, we keep Ben Affleck. We have him do one more amazing Batman movie where he's fully, you know, dedicated and engaged and motivated and inspired to turn in the kind of performance he turned in in Batman v Superman. And then you kind of have that version of Bruce Wayne ride off into the sunset while you build up Nightwing in the public's eye. And then you have that Nightwing, that Dick Grayson, become the Batman in whatever the follow-up ultimately becomes. That is my um, that is my fan dream casting, speculation, theorizing, fantasizing, fantasization for this week about all that. Um, but okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the scoop stuff that I was I was discussing earlier. You know, um, 
a few years ago when I first broke into this game, I, 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 I noticed that the highs when it comes to dropping a scoop are incredible, but the lows are really harsh. And, you know, I noticed it first as just sort of a fly on the wall working with uh, Humberto Gonzalez, El Mayimbe, and Kelvin Chavez over at Latino Review. You know, I would see all the pride they took in their scoops and all the great, you know, coverage they would get and the thrill that would come with seeing a story of theirs get picked up and ultimately confirmed and all of the respect and credibility that comes with that. But I also saw when things would crash and burn and they would get attacked and people would come after them in, in ugly and personally vindictive ways and question their credibility. And meanwhile, it was total bullshit because these guys would never, ever, ever just invent things just because they thought it was fun. Nobody does that. Anyone who accuses a journalist or a reporter of doing that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Because <laughs> if you invent something, what is the best case scenario? Okay, you get some clicks for like the, the next couple of days, and then when it comes out that you this was complete fiction, now your credibility is destroyed, your site looks bad, you look bad, and people stop trusting you. Yes, that's exactly what everyone wants. Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to put my entire credibility on the line for a few days of decent clicks. And mind you, clicks don't mean that much. Everyone likes to, you know, everyone likes to talk about clickbait and click this and click that. Well, you can go fucking click yourself because clicks don't mean much. You know, here I am with a site that in the last three months has gotten 135.8 thousand clicks, right? And counting because right now, you know, we've got stories going up and people are reading and we've made like 70 fucking dollars. So you guys got to get out of your head that like all oh, these clicks mean a lot. You know, I, I, I have a story that's gotten, you know, 5,500 clicks. Again, we've only made like 70 bucks in the last three months. So this idea of like, oh, clickbait and they're trying to take advantage of us for money, it's ridiculous. But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. So I used to watch Umberto and Kelvin go through this sort of stuff. And I remember, you know, the, the highs looked really cool. And at some point, a scoop had sort of landed on my lap. Someone I spoke to who worked for one of the big actors' unions uh, let me know that he heard through the grapevine, and this is someone I trust implicitly, he'd heard that at some point Marvel had met with, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Where am I oh, Johnny Depp. They had met with Johnny Depp about Doctor Strange. And I remember thinking, well, that's a pretty cool story. It's a sexy story. Uh, people might find it interesting. So I spoke to Kelvin about it. I spoke to Umberto about it. And then, you know, a scoop, my first real scoop was created. And, you know, I, I don't want to get like too into the weeds here with that. But like so, some of the wording got a little changed on, on the advice of others. And rather than me sticking to just exactly what the core story was, which was that Marvel and Johnny Depp had spoken, but we weren't really sure exactly when or how it had gone, you know, it, it, along, somewhere along the way, it had been decided by others that it might be best to frame this as something that is actively happening. And, you know, even though I wasn't certain if it was actively happening or if it was something that had happened in the past, we had decided to go that way. So we write the story, we put it up, and oh my goodness, 
It was the first time something I had written was suddenly trending around the world. Over the course of the next 24 hours, I'm seeing Huffington Post, I'm seeing Deadline, I'm seeing Variety. Everyone is talking about my story. Every site, and they're all mentioning Mario Francisco Robles, a Latino review, says this. And it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable feeling. It was thrilling. It was exciting. And on top of that, to me, see, I'm kind of a softy. What I love more than anything, even more so than like the cool, you know, the, the, the cool vibe you get when you see that something that you wrote is getting picked up, is the positivity around it. I love when I see people excited about projects, excited about movies, excited about actors. And at this time, at the start of 2014, Johnny Depp was still a very in-demand, likable actor. This is before his, his image sort of took a tumble. So people were very excited at the prospect of seeing him as Doctor Strange. And there was all of this like, wow, that's really inspired casting. I hope it all works out. This is great news. Doctor Strange is suddenly, instantly on my radar. Thank you so much for sharing. And that stuff just made me feel all kinds of warm and awesome, knowing that like people are excited about this news. I helped build something up. I helped get people excited about something. That's what I like to feed on more than anything, knowing that I'm excited, you're excited, and we're all looking forward to something together. But then, you know, something happened. Then, you know, then it came out that this was, you know, like the deadline basically confirmed my scoop by saying that, yes, Marvel had met with Johnny Depp, but it had been in the past tense. You know, that it really had been perhaps a year or two prior to this and that nothing had come of it. And all of a sudden then, then the negative took hold. Then people started coming after me and accusing me of lying and, 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 and for peddling, you know, untruths and, and clickbait and this, this and that. And right away I felt like, ooh, I don't like this feeling all that much. You know, I liked it when we were all excited about this. But now people are accusing me of like lying to them and inventing something. And I realized like this stuff with the scoops is very, you know, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. Because sometimes, you know, all you want to do is share something that sounds exciting with, with, with fellow fans. But if something goes haywire or if a plan gets changed or if some additional information comes in that now calls it into question, now what you've done is you've disappointed people. You've hurt people's feelings. You've gotten them excited about something that isn't going to happen. And all of that adulation becomes disappointment. And I take that sort of stuff very seriously. I, I, I get deeply upset when I feel like I've let people down and like I got them excited for something that's not going to happen anymore. And even beyond that, you know, I've noticed that there are people out there who don't take disappointment that well, that rather than just go, oh, all right, well, you know, that, that would have been cool, but oh, well, instead of just being disappointed, they have to come with fangs out after you. They have to come and try to hit you where it hurts. They have to try to attack you as a person and make you feel like a lousy human being because you got them excited about something that didn't end up coming to pass. And, you know, so at that juncture, when that Doctor Strange thing happened, I kind of said, I'm not doing scoops anymore. And for years, 
you know, anything I would hear, I would just pass along to someone else, or I just kind of kept my head out of that world because I didn't like the lows. The highs were great. The lows were unbearable for someone like me with my particular set of issues and needs and wants from the galaxy. Um, and that, you know, it's, which kind of brings us to today, you know, this thing with the, uh, with the Aquaman trailer, you know, it got really ugly. It got really ugly, and I'm really grateful and thankful for those of you who who have been understanding and took the fact that it didn't pan out in stride and understood that I was just doing my best and that this was something I'd heard and it didn't pan out, and, you know, it is what it is. I really respect and I truly appreciate that. But there were so many people who came at me in cruel, vindictive personal ways, um, just dragging my name through the mud and trying to make a mockery of me and everything that I've been working towards and totally discounting all the effort I've put into these last few months into trying to give fans a platform and and to empower us and to be a voice for good and positive in a community that is way too keen to, to go dirty all the time and to try to make you scared and to try to make you expect and fear the worst for your favorite movies and to play to your fears and to get you to be angry and to snipe at you with clickbaity snide headlines just to sort of stir up the mud and, and just, you know, I, I try so hard to be a voice of reason and to be a positive force in this world of, uh, of geekdom, uh, this punditry online that I'm a part of, and to have people come at me with the kinds of accusations that they did just because something that I reported as a rumor, mind you, I reported it as a rumor, not as something that was definitely happening. To have people go that irrationally insane on me, it was just, it was a lot for me to take. And, you know, I'm going through other trials and tribulations in my personal life. Everything's great at home, so don't worry about that. But things have been going on that have made things less than awesome for me. I've been kind of getting, gotten, getting beat up by the universe, I would say, for the last like three weeks. And I don't really want to get into all that, but it's been a tough time. I've been going through a tough time. And this thing with the Aquaman trailer, and then followed by that bizarre bullshit from two weeks ago where I made pretty much an innocuous comment about Zack Snyder, and suddenly everyone started saying that I'm anti-people with disabilities, that I'm some sort of monster who's attacking a dyslexic man. Like, it just... I've been going... I've been getting hit on all kinds of fronts, on personal fronts, on family fronts, online. It's it's, it's been... uh, It's just... It's been a very trying couple of weeks with people just wanting to make me feel really small and really shitty and and put terrible words in my mouth. And that's why when it comes to the scoops, like I'm thinking for the time being, I'm just going to kind of keep them to myself for a while. Uh, Like yesterday, I heard some interesting things. And rather than trying to report them myself, I literally went into this group chat I'm a part of uh, on Twitter with a bunch of other writers for, for other sites. And I basically just kind of like threw the chum into the water and, and, and sent those sharks out to go hunt down the scoops and, and try to get verification on these things I'm hearing. Because I, you know, I want the information to get out there, but I don't want 
you know, a big red bullseye painted on my back anymore. I kind of, I'm not kind of strong enough to take that right now. Um, I'm just not. I wish I could act all tough and macho and bravado here and <coughs> talk about, you know, my thick skin and how none of that stuff gets to me. But you know what? It, it, uh, it gets to me and I, I can't be putting a bullseye on my head. Um, the good news for you guys, for L fanboy listeners is that I will I will share things on this show because since this is more just personal and I'm talking directly to you, um, I feel more, this is more like a casual setting. So I can bring things up that I hear like bochinche just for you guys to think about, take with a grain of salt, just kind of, you know, mix this into the soup of your mind and then uh, you, you, know, you can decide if you want to take it to the bank or what you, whatever you want to do with it. It's much easier for me to mention it here on this show than to write things on the site that will now live forever, that people will throw in my face and twist my words to try to make me seem like a bad person. So rather than write things on the site anymore that are scoop-related, I'm just going to bring them here to the podcast. So... You know, uh, so I guess while we're talking about Chinche, and before I switch over to the next topic, um, you know, I, I mentioned yesterday that I, I I heard a couple of brief updates about Superman and about Green Lantern Corps, and I'm not going to write them on the site. I'm just going to tell you guys, my my listeners here, uh, it's nothing all that exciting, by the way, but it's just it's it's evidence that things are moving in a certain direction, and that excites me. Um, so apparently when it comes to Green Lantern Corps, Green Lantern fans out there, the studio is still actively looking for directors. And what they're doing right now is they are sending treatments out to certain directors. They're basically, you know, they've got a script or a treatment for the film that they're very comfortable with. And it's the direction they want to go in. And they're sending that treatment out to several directors that are you know, on their list to see who you know who's going to take the bait who wants to make this movie. Now, I don't have any clarity on who these directors are. I'm told that Christopher McQuarrie is actually not fully out of the running. That apparently when that rumor came out last month, it actually put him like back on their radar cuz they saw that fans were really excited about the prospect of him. So, but again, I, he's not like a necessarily a front runner. He's not the he's not the guy who's like a lock to get the job. But I hear he's one of the directors who was sent to treatment. Um, so you know, take that for what it's worth. But it's just indications that that project is still in the pipeline. It's still being actively developed, and you know they've they, they've got a, a wish list of directors, and you know that's what's going on there. Uh, in terms of Superman. Just what I found that was somewhat interesting is that apparently, you know, designers are already working on his costume. Uh, not necessarily for the Man of Steel sequel. This could be for Shazam. But apparently, you know, within the WB offices, you know, people have laid eyes on some costume concepts for it. And I, you know, when I heard that, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Are they going to, like, tweak it and change it? What's going on? Are they going to bring back the red trunks? And, um, you know, person I spoke to said, like, no, no, there's no, tr- you know, no trunks. They're not going that far. Uh, but, you know, just tweaks. They're, 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 they're toying with different variations on the suit. 
You know, like, the, the, like there's a concept that doesn't have that metal undersuit anymore where it looks more just like a guy wearing a costume as opposed to that metallic, you know, undersuit that he wore for the first couple of movies. Uh, there's also a version that looks a little less alien and a little more, um, you know, just a little more earthbound, just a little less of that alien technology in the suit. And there's also a version that has, uh, like, where the belt is a little more, um, how, how can I put this, more informed, more articulated, I guess more highlighted. Because right now the, the, the belt, the quote-unquote belt that Cavill has worn for the last two years has been somewhat subtle. And it looks nothing, it looks almost just like from shoulder to boots, he's all blue. And it looks like they're working on a design that, that calls more attention to the belt. Who knows, maybe they'll make it red, like in the comics, or they'll go yellow. But apparently, you know, the point of it is, designers are working on Cavill's suit, they're working on different tweaks, and that's just further evidence that, you know, Cavill's going to return, that this Superman is still very much, there's more to see of him. And listen, if you're looking at all the different hints that are going on with Zachary Levy or Levi and him on uh, Instagram and Twitter, you know, I'm still holding firm about his appearance in Shazam. And I've still got people who are, you know, going to help me out who are actually up in Toronto, who if they see pictures of him on the set or whatever, you know, I'll be sure to let you guys know about that. But either way, I just thought you guys would find that interesting, that they're they're working on some interesting little tweaks to Superman's costume, and we might see them as soon as Shazam, or maybe they're going to save the new suit for Man of Steel 2 when that ultimately gets revealed. Who knows? Um, but okay, the, you know, those were the two little bits of bochinche that I wanted to share with you guys. And from now on, that's what I'm going to do. You're going to get it here on El Fanboy. I will not really be sharing them on the site anymore unless there's something incredibly huge uh, that I can be 1,000% about. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep everything here unless that's the case. All right? Um, so, okay, now we're going to switch over to, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot of DC. Let's talk a little bit about Marvel, shall we? You know, I, w I was reading a, a piece here on, uh, you know, in Entertainment Weekly. And what's interesting about this is there, there's one quote from this feature that got a lot of press a couple of weeks ago. And really, I'm finding that, by the way, if you hear that sound, that's me holding an actual magazine in my hands. How old school am I? An actual piece of paper media. Anyway, um... <laughs> So there's a quote that that made yeah, that was making the rounds, and it's really the follow-up to this quote that has me intrigued. So Joe Russo uh, said, the, you know, the, referring to the Avengers themselves, he says, they're fractured at the start of the movie. It was always the intent in a larger arc to split the Avengers up before the greatest threat that they've ever seen. Thanos is a virtually indestructible character which makes him an extremely difficult character to fight. So that quote, you know, started, it made the rounds. A lot of people made articles about that. We did too over at Revenge of the Fans. It was an interesting quote. But if you keep reading, which I didn't do until recently, you know, Anthony Russo chimes in with, in the face of this, it's like, can you overcome the divisions that have developed between you to face a common cause? That's really the question. 
Now, why does this mean so much to me? Why does that excite me? Why, you know, what does that do for my imagination? The reason I like that is because it shows that at the core, at the heart of what is sure to be a very larger-than-life, insane, you know, fantasy, comic book, insane throwdown, there's something real going on here. That Joe and Anthony Russo have something they'd actually like to say about the world, about society, about our culture, while using this story as, you know, as the, the metaphor. Because, um, yeah, that, that line really, it, it hits close to home. Can you overcome the divisions that have developed between you to face a common cause? The reason that this connects for me is because we're always being divided. In society, around the world, doesn't matter what country you're in, doesn't matter what particular brand of division you're into, you are constantly being told that you are different than those around you. There's rarely ever a message of how we're all one, about how we're all one big team, we're all the same flesh and blood and we should all be pulling in the same direction. It's always about how different you are and how unique you are and how people who are not like you suck. That's always, you know, that, that is how the top 1% wins. As long as we're all down here on the ground fighting with each other, the people at the top who are setting up the, the, the chessboard, they get to do whatever they want because we're too busy fighting with each other. You know, oh, I was born on this rock, and you were born on that rock on that side of the ocean, so we're not the same, and somehow the rock I was born on makes me more special than you. Oh, uh, you believe in this mythology, I believe in this mythology, so therefore you and I cannot be friends because we see things very differently, even though uh, at, at the core of most of these mythologies are all the very same principles. Oh, you wear a red hat, a red cap, and I wear a blue tie, so therefore we are mortal enemies and we can never see eye to eye. Like, there's so many countless ways in which we are splintered. We are divided. We are thrown to opposite ends of different spectrums because you know why? If we ever came together as a species, as a race, as, as anything, we could take over the world. A real change would happen. Dictators wouldn't rule. Corrupt politicians would not be able to get away with the things they get away with. The world would be a completely different place if everyone just agreed we are all citizens of Earth. I'm not from Alabama. I'm from Earth. I'm not from New York. I'm from Earth. I'm not from England. I don't know why I'm doing this now. This was spontaneous. I'm not going to keep doing accents because the further we go, the worse the accents will get. But the point is... If we all ever just realize that we're all the same fucking thing, playing on the same fucking team, and we're all just trying to survive and be happy, and all and just be kind to one another, and just live your life peacefully, eat, drink, sleep, fuck, be merry, the world would be a beautiful place. But there's always going to be somebody telling you how you're different. And, 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 and what I like about what the Russos are saying here is, you know, what would happen God forbid there was some sort of larger-than-life threat that put us all at risk, which there kind of is already. If, you have, you know, if you're someone who believes in global warming, if you're someone who believes in 
just, you know, any number of things, but yeah, you know, we, we can keep it on climate change and all that sort of stuff. Let's say there's a giant threat like that that threatens the entire planet. Can we all please stop fucking bickering for a second and put our heads together and figure out how we're going to address this threat? And that's what this movie seems to want to be. Thanos is almost like the stand-in for whatever huge threat is facing our planet. And the idea of this is, wouldn't it be amazing if everyone could just come together, stop being selfish, get over your personal grudges, which at the end of the day and the big picture mean fuck all, and can we all get on the same page and deal with this together? Now granted, it's very idealistic, and it'll never happen. Uh, I hate to say that, but you know, at this point, you know, I feel like, like uh, human beings are doomed. You know, it's it's hard for us. It's just it's it's damn near impossible to picture a future where we all just kind of really come together. And it sounds so kumbaya, and I sound like a like a liberal hippie loser. But I'm not even I don't even subscribe to all that stuff. I I don't care about left or right or or Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. That's not my world. I don't I don't give a fuck. Believe whatever you like. But at the core of what you believe in. I hope you believe that we're all on the same team here. And I hope that at some point in your life, you can move away all the artificial made-up divisions that have been planted in your head through television and movies and books and, and through ignorant neighbors and cranky old uncles. I hope you can strip all that away one day and look at someone who is not at all like you and say, we are the same. I see you. I hear your struggles. You've lived a life that's different than mine, but we're all in this together. I, you know, that, that would be amazing, but unfortunately, I, I don't see it happening. But at least for the, uh, this movie, for Avengers Infinity War, it's interesting to me that they're in the DNA of the film. They're in the DNA of what the Russo brothers want to share with us is this idea of can we overcome the divisions that have developed between us to face a common cause? I think that's a beautiful thing. And it instantly sort of, you know, it heightens my, um, my interest in the film. Just knowing that they have such a sort of uh, thoughtful sensibility at, at, you know, at heart here. And I'm flipping pages because they have a nice little feature here on uh, on the entire MCU, and there's a page here dedicated 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 to Phase Three. So let's talk about Phase Three because you know something I've been doing in recent weeks is what I call Marvel Memories. I kind of walk you through my thoughts and experiences on all of the uh, 18 movies that have brought us to Avengers: Infinity War, which is already only two weeks away. So that's insane. Um, but okay, so let's talk phase three, and then we're also going to talk about some of the interesting little rumors. You know, we have the whole Fox and Disney merger that won't be finalized until next summer, and people are, you know, all these fan theories about how the X-Men could pop up in uh, Infinity War. You know, we're going to get into that, but first, let's have some Marvel memories, shall we? So we left off with phase two on the uh, last episode. We, we, the last movie we discussed was Ant-Man. 
So now let's talk about Phase 3. Phase 3 officially kicked off with Captain America Civil War. Um, you know, that's a movie that let me down. It's a movie that let me down. I, you know, I know I'm in the minority there, but, you know, it, that's fine. I don't give a fuck. Um, you know, Captain America Civil War, when I think of that film, which I have seen twice, which is, you know, is a lot for me because I don't tend to rewatch movies, uh, both times that I saw it, you know, I shouldn't say that. When I think of this movie, I think of mainly two things. I think of how much I enjoyed Peter Parker and this introduction to the new Spider-Man and the way he was depicted and everything. And I think about that crazy battle at the end, uh, you know, the, the, the three-way throwdown between Captain America, Winter Soldier, and Iron Man. Uh, that's all I really like. think about. That's all I really care about. And that's a movie that's you know, like two and a half hours long, and I the only things that really stuck with me probably take up like 15, 20 minutes of that entire two and a half hours. Uh, honestly, this was the movie that started souring me on the MCU. A lot of my sort of salty takes on the MCU developed here in Phase 3 because of the way it all started feeling very lightweight and bubblegum. Uh, for me, Civil War was the first time I felt like, here you go with a story that could be really earth-shattering, really intense, really interesting, seeing all these heroes at odds and their fundamental philosophical differences. And, you know, the, the, the Civil War comic book is such an epic, crazy, multi-tiered thing. You know, this was a story that really could have been deep and powerful and interesting. And it's the follow-up to Winter Soldier, which in and of itself was deep and powerful and interesting and hard-hitting and intense. And to me, Civil War feels like it's a ton of filler. It's a ton of just like fanboy filler. Ah, oh, here they are fighting in the airport. No one's really trying to hurt anybody. And this is really just an excuse to show off a bunch of characters doing cool things. But like to me, that's lame. That doesn't do anything for me. It's cool to watch, like, if it was just, like, a cool little bonus thing released on YouTube, check out this cool clip. Oh, that's fun. But in, in the context of a story where I'm trying to invest in what's at stake and I'm trying to engage in these people and these characters' arcs and what it means to the world at large, having this big sort of bubblegum battle between buddies who don't want to hurt each other is like, eh, it doesn't do anything for me. And, you know, I remember feeling like Baron Zemo... You know, Daniel Brühl is a great actor, and it's a, an interesting villain, and I felt like he didn't really amount to much, and his plot was somewhat overcooked. It, it, it relied on certain things that felt like, you know, coincidences that had to fall perfectly in place to make his plan work out. So, you know, Civil War just didn't really do much for me. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It's not a bad movie, but it was the first time I really felt like Marvel went softball when they had a chance to tell something really bigger and stronger and more interesting. Then that feeling carried right on over to later on in 2016 when Doctor Strange came out. Uh, Doctor Strange is another one of these things where like, you know, I felt like, ah, Doctor Strange, he's a sorcerer. We have interdimensional insanity going on, and it has these visuals. It looks like Inception. This is going to be deep and hard-hitting and crazy, and I can't wait. Oh, they hired Benedict Cumberbatch. This is unbelievable. Let's do this. And to me, it just kind of ended up feeling like Iron Man light. It felt very bubblegum. 
I felt like Stephen Strange's character wasn't that well fleshed out. They didn't really show him being the ultimate asshole that he probably should be in the beginning to then finding his redemption by the end. He's just kind of like another snarky Tony Stark type character who is a little self-absorbed, um, who has a crappy American accent because Benedict, I love you, buddy, but your English, you know, your, your American accent needs some help. Um, and just to me, just it felt lightweight. It felt forgettable. It felt like, okay, the visuals are eye-popping and beautiful, but, you know, I, I'm not invested. I don't care. Every moment that could have been intense, they took the piss out of. Every time he struck an interesting pose, the cape slapped him in the face, you know, or dragged him down a hallway. And it just seemed like the movie felt self-conscious. The movie felt like... You know, we don't want to. We, we don't want you to think we're taking this seriously. We know this is hokey, so we're we're, we're gonna make the jokes for you. We're gonna mock it so you don't have to, and that just you know it, it left that movie as a big meh on my uh, on my radar. I'm not gonna see that one again probably ever, and I don't care. Meanwhile, I didn't hate it. It was just to me the biggest offense is how toothless it was. Then. That trend continued again into 2017 with the very next Phase 3 movie, which is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Mind you, you know, I, don't, I didn't have the glowingest impressions of the first Guardians. I, I, as I said last time, I fell asleep during it. Um, but, you know, in the, in the lead-up to Volume 2, I re-watched Guardians, and I remember feeling like, you know what, I didn't give this thing a fair shake and I enjoyed it a little more the second time around with a better understanding of what this really is. But Guardians Volume 2, as I said in my video review last year, which is still up on the El Fanboy YouTube if you want to check it out, it felt like a movie that was filled with emotional subplots and meanings and, and things brimming under the surface that are that are going like, oh boy, this is heavy stuff, we're dealing with finding your father, we're dealing with a family dynamic falling apart and trying to find common ground with people who you love but you just don't like sometimes. You know, it has all these things that I thought, wow, this you know, here's a very like emotional story that somehow makes itself emotionally unavailable. It keeps you at arm's length. It teases you with all of these emotional ideas, but every time an opportunity arises where now we can see those ideas come to life or see them fleshed out, Kurt Russell says, now I got to go take a piss. You know, the, that, that line after he says like, yeah, Peter, I am your dad. Now I got to go pee. That perfectly exemplifies what a lot of that movie was for me. It's like, here we are. We've been setting something up. Here's the big reveal, and it's turned directly into a punchline. Um, so Guardians Volume 2, I, I, I kind of hold in similar to regard to Doctor Strange, where the visuals are unbelievable, and it's a fine time at the theater, but ultimately it, it makes itself so emotionally guarded that I couldn't really invest, I couldn't get into it, and I really wanted to. There's so many things about this movie that I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing when they finally unveil and, and unfurl and fully explore all these different thoughtful ideas in it. Oh, I can't wait to see this come to fruition. But instead, the whole thing was played for laughs and it just left me feeling like, all right, I, I guess that was a, a decent way to spend two hours. Um, then there was Spider-Man Homecoming, which came out just two months later. And that one I actually really loved. 
I actually felt that that one actually nailed the balance. Um, you know, I felt like it had plenty of the humor and it had that, 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 that nice, like lighthearted energy and it buzzed and it zipped around and it really tried to put you in the shoes of like a John Hughes teen coming of age type movie. And, you know, I, I really feel like it succeeded in that, but it also, when it had to be emotional, especially in the third act, it, it, it got emotional. I always think about, you know, come on, Spider-Man, come on. When he's buried under that stuff and you realize this is just a kid. This Spider-Man is just a kid and he's trying to figure out if he can really do this. He doesn't know if he's got it in him to be all the things he wants to be. And in that heartbreaking moment where he's trying to pull himself out because he's been tricked by the vulture and he's realizing now that he's in over his head and he's alone and he's scared and... You know, th th that just got to me. And it still does. So to me, you know, I, would I have liked a little more of an emotional core to the film? Of course. You know, it kind of irks me that we didn't really get any of the Uncle Ben stuff or any of the deeper, more profound connection to Aunt May that he could and should have. You know, to me, it was, it was way more lighthearted than it should have been. But overall, I found the film to be well-acted, well-directed, well-paced, I had a great time, and when I had to feel feels, I felt feels. So I enjoyed Spider-Man Homecoming. It's probably, you know, probably my favorite, well, I, I see what's coming up, so it's probably my second favorite of the Phase 3 movies. Then there's Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok, I loved. Thoroughly loved it. Even though it was as frivolous and lighthearted and empty calories as Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the big difference was this didn't tease you with bigger, deeper things. You know, whereas Doctor Strange and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 were brimming with potential to be something very different and something that worked on several levels, Thor Ragnarok makes itself very clear from the outset you know, and goes all throughout the film. It is very consistent in that this is just fun. We're having a good time. Here are some likable, crazy, charming characters in some kooky situations. It's colorful. It's vibrant. It's tongue-in-cheek. Let's have some fun and let's go home. And the fact that, like, it knew exactly what it wanted to be and didn't really try to tease you with being anything more than that... I, it means I, I. It gives me a great, a greater sense of respect and and um, admiration for the film than other movies pre, you know, earlier on in Phase Three, because at least this knew what it wanted to be. Taika Waititi, our old friend, um, you know, he knew what he was going for, and he stuck the landing beautifully. I had a great time with Thor Ragnarok. Um, and that's why that one's my third favorite Phase 3 movie. My first favorite is the final of the bunch. That would be Black Panther. You know, final up to now, up until Avengers comes out. Uh, Black Panther, as I've said before, I thought, uh, you know, it, it, it's probably the best Marvel film since The Winter Soldier. Uh, it had the audacity to take itself seriously. Um, it, it, it gave us a really riveting tale about T'Challa with a great performance by Chadwick Boseman. It didn't try to overload the narrative with any world-building stuff. It was a very sort of self-contained and interesting story. 
And I really feel like it's a, it's a real success story, and I'm really glad to hear how well that film has done, because hopefully it means that Marvel continues down this path, where Marvel is willing to let the filmmakers tell the stories they want to tell, tell some interesting allegorical stories that you can tie into the real world, which Black Panther's filled with that stuff, and to really just kind of like let these directors really put their stamp. You know, that felt like a Ryan Coogler movie. It really did. And, you know, I just, I think Black Panther is the best of the best when it comes to Phase 3. Um, do I have some qualms with it? Sure. I remember feeling like in Act 3, which I've never really discussed, I kind of felt like the, the big fight at the end between Killmonger and Black Panther sort of resolved itself very quickly. I remember, I, I remember when it was over, going, oh, that's it? Like, to me, it felt like they were just getting started. And then it was just over. He stabbed him, and then it was over. And then, granted, before I could really feel the disappointment of that, you know, Michael B. Jordan delivers that powerful line as he's dying and looking off into the sunset. So, you know, before I could really harp on that, you know, he, I was blown away emotionally by what they did. So that's why I, I didn't knock off too many points for that. But I felt like Act 3, you know, it, it resolved a little too simply... Um, and it felt a little forced, by the way. You know, no one really wants to discuss it because everyone only wants to focus on the positive. But that was a little bit, like, heavy-handed and forced with the whole thing with the train and how, like, the, the, those beams around the train deactivate the vibranium. And therefore, like, it, just, it felt very, like, on the nose. It felt like, okay, this is awfully convenient that these two guys are fighting and there just happens to be this beam here that deactivates vibranium. For me, I would have much rather they found a way to have the fight be where Killmonger has that serum in him, but T'Challa only has the suit. He doesn't have the serum, so he really only has his natural warrior abilities. And I thought that would have been a much more interesting way to go. And granted, they did some of that earlier on where we see depowered T'Challa. So that's why like, it would have involved the entire script playing out differently. But I thought it would have been interesting to show how strong T'Challa's character is, not in terms of physical strength, but in terms of his, his resolution and who he is and his dedication to being the king of Wakanda and representing his people right you know, I thought it would have been amazing to have him enter that battle basically as a mortal going up against someone who's a demigod and seeing how that fight plays out and him having to outmaneuver and outthink Killmonger who has all of the physical, um, you know, uh, what should I say? It's just, you know, has all the physical things working in his favor. He has the physical upper hand. So to me, I would have liked that, but again, that's just more like, you know, fantasy. That that's that's how I would have done it. I can't deduct points from a movie because I would have done it differently. But, you know, while we're here talking about it casually, you know, that that fight at the end felt a little bit just kind of, eh, all right, it's two demigods beating the hell out of each other. Here's this ray that can randomly depower one of them. And uh that's it. It just felt a little bit too easy, too simple. Um, so that does it for my, uh, my Marvel memories, because the next Marvel movie is Avengers Infinity War. So let's talk a little bit about Infinity War. You know, uh, the, in the last couple of days, a bunch of reports have come out that highlight the fact, I mean, it's, it's been common knowledge forever, but of course that hasn't stopped people from, from running off at the mouth with all kinds of theories. Um, 
you know, it, 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 it's been reported that Fox and Disney, that merger, that deal, if it happens, which it looks like it will, will not be finalized until summer of 2019. And of course, that flies in the face of all these different hopeful fans who are saying, oh, maybe the X-Men or something like that can pop up in Infinity War. Or maybe we'll get Silver Surfer, or Galactus, and this, this, and that. Um, here's the thing. I don't think these reports fly in the face of that. I really don't. Uh, you know, Fox and Marvel have had open relationship before. You know, they, they, they've come to uh, similar accords in the past. You know, they, they worked out the whole thing where there would be two Quicksilvers, one in Age of Ultron and one in Days of Future Past. There was that thing last year where they struck a little quiet deal that allowed the Watchers to show up in, uh, what was that, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And meanwhile, the Watchers are part of Fox's Fantastic Four IP. So, you know, Fox and Marvel have made little quiet deals in the past. So I don't think the, the, the sale and the merger are going to really impact that. For all we know, remember, this movie's been in production for a long time. In production and pre-production for a long time. In, in a time that, that predates this deal. So for all we know, Kevin Feige and, and Simon Kinberg already made a couple of little under-the-table deals to have characters from the Fantastic Four universe pop up in Infinity War. Uh, do I think it's going to be anyone huge? No. I don't think we're going to see Silver Surfer, especially when you consider the fact that I think, like, what, a month and a half ago, The Hollywood Reporter or Variety was uh, discussing the fact that Fox is trying to make... Uh, a Silver Surfer movie and a Doctor Doom movie and whatever. So I don't think anyone gigantic is going to be part of Infinity War. But I would not be surprised if there's basically the equivalent of Easter eggs. There's going to be little Easter eggs if you're looking at the, you know, when, when they're up in the cosmos, you might see other characters like, oh my god, that's so-and-so from such-and-such. -such. You know, you, there might be little just bits of fan service from the Fox properties in Infinity War. But I would not expect any X-Men. First of all, as you could tell, Fox is moving full steam ahead with all of its X-Men plans as if this Disney thing is not even happening. You know, with Kitty Pride and Gambit and X-Force and, you know, all, all the effort they're putting into the New Mutants and Dark Phoenix. So I, I wouldn't expect a single bit of X-Men anything in this movie. But there might be some fun Easter eggs from the Fantastic Four, Galactus, Silver Surfer end of things without those actual characters themselves popping up. So that's what I think about that. And th this opens up something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, which is I feel like Marvel has sort of written themselves into a corner. Accidentally, mind you, because I don't know that they could have banked on this Disney-Fox deal going through as easily and as quickly as they had. so But I feel like they've written themselves into a corner because now it's going to open up a can of worms to a certain extent when they want to incorporate the X-Men into the MCU. And here's what I mean by that. I, I don't really see anyone talking about this. So much of what Infinity War is about, and the way they're selling it, and the way they're hyping it, and the way the filmmakers talk about it, is it's basically all of Earth taking its last stand. It's all of Earth banding together to stop Thanos. Well, what happens now 
when you want to bring in the X-Men and act like they've been around all this time? Where were they? You know, granted, there'll be built-in explanations for some of the characters that are more like street level. Like for the same reason, we're not going to see the Defenders in Infinity War. Um, but there are characters in the X-Men universe who would absolutely factor into a battle like this. You know, you have these characters who are practically demigods with their mutant abilities. Why wouldn't they, why would they just stay on the sidelines as Earth fights the ultimate battle as this film keeps on touting how this is going to be an entire universe at war? Well, where are the X-Men in this universe? So, they're, they're going to have to go one of two ways. And I'd love for you guys to give me your feedback on this. I'm sure people with comic book knowledge, which I don't possess, can come up with interesting ways to do all this that I, I could never think of. But what this means is one of two things. It means they're either going to have to in introduce the X-Men as something very new that's happening. As something as literally like, yes, there, there's some, you know, there, there are a few mutants living off the grid, but this whole thing with Xavier and him coming, to, you know, coming out of the shadows and, and forming the, uh, the school and creating the X-Men, they're going to have to act like all of that happens from this point on. From whatever year it currently is in the MCU, that that sort of stuff happens after Infinity War. Yeah, so that's one way to explain why the X-Men were completely just sat idly by as Thanos' forces came to conquer the world. Or they're going to have to bring in interdimensional stuff. And they're going to have to basically act like the X-Men existed, but they were in a completely alternate reality. Because unlike someone like Captain Marvel, who you know, I'm sure they're going to explain that because she's more of a cosmic character and you know th that's going to explain why she wasn't here for uh, this first part of the Infinity War battle. You know, when it comes to X Men, they're all terrestrial, so you can't act like they were someplace else. The entire X Men, you know, all of them, all the villains, the heroes, all of them live on Earth. And you know, if you follow the comic book canon, you know they've been around since the '60s. Depending on how you want to look at it, they've been around a long time, so there really is no excuse for why they would not factor into this battle unless they are in an alternate Earth. So using characters like Doctor Strange and Captain Marvel with you know, the, the sort of cosmic interdimensional stuff they've got going on, that they're going to have to go that route, I think. Because um, otherwise, you know, it is a cannon of worms. If, if for some reason they don't address it, and they just introduce an X-Men movie in a few years, and they kind of act like these guys have been around through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that Xavier's been around, that Magneto was around for World War II, and all this sort of stuff. If they try to go that route, it's going to open up a huge plat hole, a huge plot hole that I feel like, you know, it's going to be highly scrutinized. So that's just something that I, it's been on my mind. It's a conversation I'd like to have with you guys. So feel free to tweet at me or to comment at revengeofthefans.com in the comment section for this episode of the podcast. I'd love to know your thoughts on it because um, I really do see it as a, as a potentially riveting problem. And mind you, I'd, e I'd even love to hear if you disagree, if you feel like it's not a problem, if you, if you feel like they introduced the X-Men in a couple years and it's never addressed and you're fine with that. Let me know that too. Maybe I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, I, I've been known to kind of get uh, lost in these kinds of canon 
plot things in the past. I, I remember I wrote a, po- uh, a piece for LRM a couple of years ago about how I felt like Spider-Man Homecoming was going to be handicapped by the fact that the Defenders aren't going to show up. You know, here you have Peter Parker, this street-level New York City icon, you know, and you have the Defenders supposedly roaming those very same streets, basically on Peter Parker's beat. And in my mind, I'm like, how are they going to address this? This is going to be a huge problem when, you know, when, when Vulture's, you know, big threat happens, why wouldn't Luke Cage and Jessica Jones show up? You know, they're all in the same area, man. New York's not that big. And I remember, like, to me, it was this big ordeal. And, you know, I wrote about it, and a bunch of people were like, no, it doesn't matter to me. In the comics, all these heroes coexist in one place, and you don't expect to see the other heroes whenever another one's in trouble, and yada, yada, yada. So who knows? Maybe this is just that again. Maybe I'm overthinking this X-Men thing, but either way, I would love to hear back from y'all whether or not you think that's the case. But all right, it's almost time to wrap things up for this week, folks. Before we do, here's a little update on what's been going on in my uh, fanboy life, things that I've been checking out that uh, I can can recommend to you. Um, First of all, with the, uh, the old Audible subscription, I just ingested... Uh, the Fight Club novel. Remember uh, on the last episode, I recommended Fight Club as the movie for you guys to watch. And it got me thinking about the movie again. So I went ahead and checked out the book. I wanted to see how it's the same, how it's different. And, you know, it's a great read. I mean, or a great listen or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But that Fight Club book is fairly phenomenal. And if you love the movie, I strongly suggest the book. And if you haven't seen either, I think the book is a great way to start and then watch the movie so you could see sort of the interesting ways that uh, David Fincher took the material. Um, In terms of like my main referral for this week, actually, before we get into that, I've been playing the hell of a particular video game, the hell out of one, uh, which is the the Lord of the Rings one, the, um, the Shadow of War. It's so addictive. If you guys, you know, if anyone played Shadow of Mordor when it came out a couple of years ago, this one is just as addictive. It, there's just, you know what it is? There's something so satisfying about the gameplay. You know, it, it plays like Batman Arkham Asylum. All those Arkham games, this basically has the same engine, except instead of hand-to-hand combat, you've got swords and you're decapitating orcs and Uraks. And the sound effects when you're just destroying these things is so satisfying. At the end of a long day, I'm telling you, sometimes I don't even play the story missions. I just roam around Middle Earth and I start shit with giant groups of orcs just so I can like slaughter 30 of them in one full swoop. It just feels so good. Um, so Shadow of War, if you, if you guys are curious... I think I, I definitely recommend that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun time suck. And if you like Lord of the Rings, I mean, you know, it's made by Warner Brothers, which owns New Line, and it has, you know, it's, it's part of the movie lore. They even have, you know, Andy Serkis's Gollum in there. I don't know if it's Andy Serkis voicing him, but the design and everything, he's in there. So, you know, if, you, if you're someone who loved the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit trilogy, 
you know, sh- the, the, the shadow of games would be right up your alley, especially if you're also a fan of Rocksteady's Batman Arkham games, because the mechanics are very similar, only this one's way more brutal than the Batman games can be, because you're running around with a fucking sword. <laughs> um, so, okay, which brings me to my, 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 my big referral this week, and it's also a hype for next week's show. Because I know, I know last week when I had to cancel, I mentioned I was going to try to have a guest on for this week. As you can tell, I didn't do that. And it wasn't because I didn't get people who were down to do it. I actually got like nice handshake commitments from like two or three different people, people from different walks of life. You know, there's one who's a filmmaker. There's one who's a fellow podcaster who has his own particular specialty that I think would be great for this and someone else who is who does a lot of what I do but just differently enough for me to think that we would have a great conversation about Batman and DC and things like that but I just kind of decided at the last second I I wanted I wanted to make this episode just one on one just you and I because it just you know it, it just felt it, it's where I'm at right now I didn't want to have a conversation I just wanted to speak directly to you but for next week I'm trying to get filmmaker Nigel Bach on the show. He's already agreed to come on. It's about at this point, it's all a matter of just um, you know ironing out the logistics of when we could handle the interview. But I want to recommend for you, and I mentioned this on the Revengers podcast earlier this week, the Batter Ben trilogy. And mind you, they're not amazing. They're not. But I love them for what they are. I love them, especially after watching The Making Of. I have this huge um, respect and admiration for Nigel Bach for what he did here. And I want to get him on the air next week on El Fanboy to talk about how he made these movies and why he should be an inspiration to anyone out there who's ever just had a wild idea and actually wanted to, like, put it into action, actually do it, you know, because that's always been a big trouble, a big struggle of mine, I get all these big, crazy, wide-eyed ideas, but then they, they just stay in my head, you know, I talk about them, I get really hot on them for a little while, and then nothing happens, and just to kind of give you some semblance of why I love this guy so much right now, is, you know, he wanted to film like a found footage horror movie, and while driving up to to his home to to do it he was going to film it at his house he found out that the actors who he had hired were had flaked on him for whatever reason they flaked on him they weren't going to come up and this weekend they were going to shoot this found footage movie and now suddenly that had gone to hell and what this guy did is he pulled out his cell phone while driving and improvised an opening of a movie he filmed out in front of him with him narrating basically what would become the premise of the movie and proceeded to drive up to his house and over the course of whatever it was that weekend or maybe it was a week, he winged it. He winged the movie. And if it's actually very, very well done, it's, it's like a found footage horror comedy that sort of has fun with the conceit of a found footage horror movie. And he also, you know, he, so he, it's, he's a one-man show. He filmed the movie. He re- came up with the whole storyline and concept, like, on the spot. And he, he plays this character named Tom Riley, who bought this house at a sheriff's sale. 
and he got it for super cheap. It was a sheriff's sale, and he's basically going to spend the weekend at the house trying to see what kind of condition it's in so that he could flip it. And what's amazing about the Tom Riley character is that as he discovers that there are ghosts and paranormal entities and things going on in there, he doesn't get scared. He gets fucking annoyed <laughs> because he thinks it's going to interfere with his ability to flip the house. And it's hilarious because he plays it so dry. Like, he, he literally, like, he chastises the ghost rather than being scared of them. Like, at some point, like, a ghost pulls a chair away from him and slams it into a wall. And does he run away screaming or freaking out? He just goes, stop it. He just seems bothered. My wife and I were laughing so much throughout that movie because he's just a guy who's over it. He wants to sell the house. He doesn't give a damn about the ghosts in it. And he basically just you know, keeps telling Bad Ben to leave the house alone and to stop causing property damage because it's interfering with the profit he's going to make on the house. It's such like a simple, silly little thing. He made the whole movie on like a $300 budget. He one-man banded this thing. And it got such a response when he actually edited it and put it all together that he ended up shooting... A, a prequel and a sequel. And I just, I, and, and for the prequel and the sequel, he managed to get other actors in and he fleshed out this mythology. And suddenly this thing, that this movie that he had made, basically winging it with his cell phone and other cameras he had at his disposal, became a trilogy of movies that had developed their own little fandom. It's currently on Amazon Prime. And I got to tell you, I just... You know, they're not the highest quality movies at all. They're not, you know, if you look at it, you know, it's going to feel somewhat amateur. It's going to feel somewhat unpolished. But you know what? To me, that's the charm of it. If you're able to look past it as a fan of the medium of filmmaking and realize that this man had this idea in his head and even when actors flaked on him and he could have just given up on it and moved on, he decided, screw it, I'm going to wing my own found footage movie. And it became this trilogy. You know, I just have such respect for him. And it makes it, you know, th th there's such a charm to how sort of lo-fi the movies are. Um, so that's why, you know, my suggestion is check out the Bad Ben trilogy. It's on Amazon Prime. And I'm going to, you know, in theory, assuming the scheduling works out, I'm going to have the star of those movies, who's also the writer and director of those movies, Nigel Bach, on the show. So I feel like watching it, or at least watching one of them, will, will give you a good primer for who this guy is and why I want to pick his brain so badly. And as for which one to watch, I mean, if you don't have time for all three, at least watch Bad Ben. And if you have time for two out of the three, I would say skip the prequel. Uh, the prequel's all right, but he's not in it. it. It's before him. And I, to me, for, for my wife and I, the Tom Riley character, played by Nigel Bach, is the really, uh, that's the MVP of this series. So I would say skip the prequel and just do Bad Ben and Badder Ben. The sequel is called Steelmanville Road. And it actually might get confusing to you guys. It, it, it was for us because it doesn't have Bad Ben in the title. So when you look for Bad Ben on Amazon Prime, You'll see this Steelmanville Road thing, but there's not necessarily clear branding that it's part of the trilogy. So, you know, if you want to do all of it, those are the three movies. If you want to just do one, just do Bad Ben. If you want to just do two, do Badder Ben also. If you want to do it all, then I suggest you also watch The Making Of, which is a half hour long. 
And we loved it, especially at the end. It really tugged at my heartstrings when he realized, you know, when he shared with the fans and the viewers, what a life-changing thing this has been for him. That this little thing that he created on his own, on a whim, has connected with people and has given him fans and has given people who want to see what he's going to do next. You know, he has this very heartfelt message at the end, which actually put like a lump in my throat. To realize, you know, this is just, if you check it out, he's just this guy who lives in South Jersey, older, middle-aged guy, balding, just kind of like, you know, he just, he did it though. He did it. He, He didn't create excuses. He just pulled out the cameras and he said, fuck it, I'm gonna make a movie and let's see how this goes. And it's become something. I just find that so inspiring. So, um... Check that out, and Nigel Bach will be on the show. If not next week, then soon. He's already said he's definitely down, and I, for one, cannot wait to speak with this man. Um, But all right, you know, uh, and also just one last thing before we go. You know, I have a piece up about what's happening at the box office this weekend, and just to sort of recap what all that is, I put together my own, like, top five of what I think is going to happen this weekend at the box office, so I'm going to finish up with these projections so that I can follow up on next week's The Revengers podcast with how things actually played out. So right now in my top five is Rampage will take the top spot. It's going to make somewhere between 34 to $40 million. Um, in second place, I, I'm predicting that A Quiet Place will take second place. Uh, you know, it's crazy how people think it's going to cool off so mildly they think the film is only going to cool like 35 to 40 percent and could make around 30 or 32.5 million dollars so i think it's going to easily take second place so we'll see how that plays out um mind you there's even a crazy possibility it surpasses rampage and repeats which would be insanity but i think i I, i'm going to file that under unlikely in third place and this is kind of like my big bold prediction um I think Ready Player One is going to take third place. Uh, And the reason why that's bold is because Blumhouse, or Bloomhouse, however the fuck you say it, is releasing one of those, you know, horror movies that they're so, you know, that that are so, that are performing so nicely for them, I should say. You know, last year they had that Happy Death Day. I mean, they've had a million of these, like, very, like, low, you know, low-budget, high-concept horror films. Um... And everyone's expecting that one to take third. But I have a feeling that A Quiet Place is going to eat into the horror audience for Truth or Dare, especially since the reviews are so much better than Truth or Dare. And I think Ready Player One will actually will be the, the, the real winner of that little battle on this Friday the 13th spooky weekend. I think all the horror audiences are going to go to A Quiet Place, which opens up third for Ready Player One and fourth for Truth or Dare. And rounding out the top five is I'm predicting Blockers, the uh, the John Cena comedy. I mean, there's a lot of other people in it, but all I care about is John Cena. Um, I think that one's going to you know t- take the the fifth place slot. It should make somewhere around ten to twelve million bucks, and uh, that's about it. So everyone. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Revengers podcast next week, where I'll have my co-hosts Brett Miro and Vanessa Bontea. Where you know we'll I'll have the follow-up to this box office prediction. 
And we're going to cover all the week's top stories. And, of course, come back next week for another edition of the All Fanboy Podcast, my uh, my confessional sort of editor's corner, where I just kind of talk about whatever the fuck's on my mind and try to have an interesting conversation in the process. So, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you have not yet, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts to continue spreading the good word about what you think of this show and what it is that I bring to the table. And... Uh, I guess I'll sneak in one final cheap plug for patreon.com slash revenge of the fans if you'd like to help support the cause because this stuff is all very time intensive and as much as I love it, uh, you know, making a little money or at least being able to pay my writers for their wonderful time uh, would be a great thing and right now I can't really do that. So anyway, thank you everyone for listening and for humoring me and I just want y'all to know that I love you, all right? I will, uh, until next week, adios. Adios.